Hello and welcome to What Remains. My name is M.K. Fuller. I'm a graduate student at American University in the Public Anthropology Program, and this podcast will serve as my substantial research project, which is essentially a capstone project similar to a thesis. Through this research, I'll be examining the industry surrounding non-transplant tissue donations here in the U.S. In this first episode, I'll be going into some background information for this project and cover the purpose of my research, some key definitions, and what topics I'll be discussing. In terms of goals for this project, I plan to look at the state of non-transplant tissue donations in the U.S., incorporate this topic into existing anthropological literature, and examine what activists in this field are working towards in terms of regulation and awareness. Non-transplant tissue donations are a form of post-mortem body donation. Non-transplant donations, as the name implies, are not for transplantations or other medical procedures for living patients, but rather they are used for biomedical education, research, or training. Most medical, dental, and mortuary schools rely on these donations as a vital part of their education. Surgeons are taught new procedures using willed bodies, and an untold amount of pathology, forensic, and public health research is made possible because of those that donate their bodies for this purpose. One specific example of how non-transplant donations are used is the University of Tennessee Knoxville's Forensic Anthropology Center. I'm very partial to this body donation program because I've used research from their body farm when I was studying biological anthropology, and it's where I hope to have my body donated to when I die. I was extremely lucky to be able to interview Dr. Lee Meadows-Jantz, the associate director of the Forensic Anthropology Center there, back in February. The center predominantly studies decomposition and how certain environmental factors impact it, but they do a lot of research in aid of forensic pathology and law enforcement as well. So some of the projects they've done recently have included looking at lipids in bone before, during, and after decomposition, how fire damage alters signs of trauma on bodies, and how decomposition affects various drugs that were in someone's system at the time of death. A unique aspect of the Forensic Anthropology Center and other similar body farms that focus on decomposition is that they retain remains after research is concluded for their skeletal collection. Medical-willed body programs almost always return bodies to the family or estate of the deceased once research is concluded. And because skeletal remains are kept at the center, they offer family visits. Dr. Meadows Jantz is really partial to these visits and shared this anecdote with me. Well, like I mentioned earlier, um, families can come visit um, the skeletal remains once they're in the collection. Um, and that happens. I, I probably host four to six families a year, something like that. And that I, I like when we do, I love doing that um, because the families may not have understood what their, um, you know, what their, why their loved one wanted to do this. Um, and, and then I can talk to them about any, any research that was done with their loved one, um, talk about all the training that we do and, and how it benefits our program and continues to benefit our program. And so um, I, in fact, this has been some years ago, I had a brother who wanted to come visit. And it took more than a year to work it out. He was a truck driver. And so it had to be on his schedule. And um, we finally got it worked out. And uh, he came to visit. And what I typically do is sit down and talk to him about what kind of research might have been done. And, you know, generally what our practices are. 
um, the training that we do. Um, and then I offer them the opportunity to see the remains if they want to. And, and sometimes they do, sometimes they're reluctant. They, they don't know what to expect. And um, he said, yes, you know, he, he thought about it and he said, yes, he did. And so I opened the box and I was pointing out some, you know, features that are interesting. And um, then he wanted a moment alone. And I said, that's absolutely. And I walked over here and um, we had some researchers, visiting researchers that, that week. And um, so I was talking to them, telling them that this was a family visit. And so he came, he came to find me. And so I introduced him to the researchers and he started asking them what their research was about. And he thought that was really cool. And uh, so as we were leaving, we were walking back to my office. He said, you know, I didn't really want to donate my brother. And now I'm really glad that I did. And so, it, it, in fact, he, he came by, to, he dropped by to visit randomly a year later. Um, so, and there were researchers he got to talk to. So I think that, I think those family visits, it, it um, it reinforces that, um, you know, that they that they followed through and donated. So, and and they like it. They may not have liked it in the first place. For the Forensic Anthropology Center, these family visits are a great way of connecting families to their deceased loved ones' values. The desire to donate your body after death can be difficult for many to understand. So Dr. Meadow Jantz feels that these family visits allow those that are struggling with understanding their loved one's desire to donate their body the chance to engage with interesting and meaningful research that is made possible by these donations. There's one industry-specific term that's important to define ahead of time because it will come up a lot in future episodes, body broker. A body broker is an individual or firm that works as an intermediary in the sale of full cadavers or separate body parts strictly for the purposes of training, education, or research. Body brokers are a necessary part of any discussion on non-transplant tissue donations because they are often how institutions acquire cadavers and their industry is the point of intersection between scientific research or education and for-profit interests. The sales brokers mediate are typically between either the family of the deceased or a local funeral home and the institutions seeking the cadavers for research. The practice of body brokering, like tissue donations for transplantations, does not allow for family or next of kin to profit from these sales under the Uniform Anatomical Gifts Act of 1968, except in non-financial ways like having funerary expenses or cremation fees waived, but does require their legal consent for the sale if the deceased had not given it prior to dying. The Uniform Anatomical Gift Act doesn't legally allow anyone to profit from the buying or selling of human remains except to recoup costs. The commonly accepted loophole is to overinflate costs for labor, transportation, and storage of remains, which is how these industries generate profit and how body brokering is able to exist at all. Whereas tissue trade for the purpose of transplantation is heavily regulated and overseen by the Food and Drug Administration and the Department of Health and Human Services. This industry is typically regulated internally. When undertaking ethnographic research, especially research that is both sensitive and has a long history of exploitative practices, positionality is a key discussion to have. 
Positionality is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw and refers to social and political contexts that create your particular identity and how those intersecting identities can influence or bias your perspective. A strong historic trend of medical exploitation exists for disabled and ill people, and while I myself am chronically ill, I have the outward appearance of someone able-bodied, so I also must be conscious and deferential to the mistreatment of disabled people in brokering contexts, especially those whose illness or disability makes their remains desirable for research. Relatedly, there are also recorded instances of prisoners having their bodies sold for medical experimentation and other related purposes in the U.S., and there has been a long pattern of victimization of people of color throughout the history of medical testing and the harvesting of body parts after death. And this trend continues in many ways into modern body donation and collection. The field of body brokering in particular has its origins in body snatchers and resurrectionists, those who would steal already buried bodies to sell to medical schools, which disproportionately impact those who were socially deemed to have their bodies not worth noticing if they went missing. Today, that continues with poor, black, indigenous, unhoused, and disabled people being the most impacted by unethical or coercive cadaver collection practices. As someone who is white, relatively able-bodied, and housed, I have to be cognizant of not contributing to the dehumanization of the deceased who come from marginalized demographics and be aware that those impacted by illegal or unethical acts of body brokering and body collection in general may be disproportionately unlike me in many ways. Death is often a difficult topic, even for those in death care fields, and many choose to dehumanize the dead or treat them as objects in order to limit the emotional burden of empathizing with the deceased and their grieving loved ones. When speaking about these topics and discussing this research, I need to be aware of this coping mechanism and not rely on it myself because of how likely vulnerable and marginalized populations are to be exploited by these practices and related fields. Respect and dignity for the dead will be prioritized in this process at all times. Finally, in regards to the format, I chose a podcast for its accessibility, both for those of you listening and for myself. I've written a 90-page thesis before, and all of maybe five people read it. Without making this research approachable and digestible, it only serves to check boxes for me and earn a degree, and I want this work to have meaning outside of academic requirements. I also hope that this might serve as an example of how to accommodate disabled and chronically ill graduate students. In June of 2020, I contracted COVID, and as of recording this, I've been struggling with the resulting post-viral syndrome for 10 months now. In that time, I've been juggling appointments with nine different specialists, all while dealing with decreases in my language processing, memory, cognitive vigilance, and other neurological functions that have made this project more difficult for me to execute than it would have been a year ago. It likely won't come up often in this particular project, but disability activism and accessibility, especially in academia, are issues that I'm very passionate about. I was chronically ill even before this pandemic, and I have seen and experienced countless hurdles that my able-bodied peers haven't had to contend with in order to obtain advanced degrees. I hope that my choosing a non-standard format 
specifically to accommodate my decreased cognitive function might serve as an example of how higher education can be more inclusive of students who struggle with the massive amounts of writing that typically goes into a standard thesis. And of course, I'm very fortunate to be in a department and have professors who are very supportive of my needs right now and how I can best accommodate them. Thank you for joining me for this project. Transcripts with citations will be on this podcast website, and if you have any questions, you can contact me through that website as well. Next episode, I'll be going into a literature review of anthropological theory on the topics of organ and body donation, bodily autonomy, and the conceptualization of self through the body. Talk to you next time.